0: 19-3717 from the district of minnesota david hines versus carrington mortgage services mr Druis, you could proceed thank you your honor may it please the court my name is jonathan Druis. i am here appearing on behalf of david hines the plaintiff appellant in this matter our analysis begins as it must with the statute uh, there are two short statutes as part of the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act that we analyzed. The first is uh, 15 U.S.C. 1692-E. That statute reads, A debt collector may not use any false, deceptive, or misleading representation or means in connection with a collection of any debt. The second statute that we look at is 15 U.S.C. 1692-F. That statute reads, a debt collector may not use unfair or unconscionable means to collect or attempt to collect any debt. Council, an initial question for you: Those statutes use different language. Uh, F uses to um, to collect or attempt to collect, and E uses in connection with the collection of a debt. Does the different does that difference matter for this case? I think it matters only slightly. I think um, there's a couple points. One that it matters in that the that we know the legislature knows that it can do different things there right we know that i think the first uh section then is more broad because it says in connection with collection of a debt rather than um to collect or attempt to collect a debt um as far as uh as, as far as it being more broad in connection with collection of a debt that would encompass um any of the three time periods that we focus on whether it's the first loan modification the time immediately before the foreclosure share of sale um, or after um, the unfair or unconscionable means portion. Um, there, there's a more narrow construction there. I still think that all three apply, but I, I do think it's a slightly different standard between them because of that um, additional in connection with language. Um, so but I, think it's, I think it's significant to note that the court below uh, already acknowledged um, a lot of what we're trying to prove in the case. Uh, straight from, this is uh, page 26 of the addendum and of the lower court's order that reads, the court acknowledges that Mr. Hines fully cooperated with Carrington to try to stop it from foreclosing on the property. As such, Carrington's actions during the foreclosure process, when accepting all of Mr. Hines' allegations as true, might appropriately be described as unfair. When, when we look at that second statute and talk about what does it mean to be unfair in attempting to collect a debt, uh, to collect or attempt to collect a debt. If foreclosure is debt collection and the and the lower court already ruled that it's fair to say that that process was unfair, then I think that's, that's all you need. At least that's all you need to get where we're asking the court to take us, which is to a jury. We, we believe that the facts are at least in dispute in this case so much that a jury should um, be ultimately the decision maker. The reason we believe foreclosure is debt collection is because the Supreme Court tells us it is, literally. The quote is, foreclosure is a means of collecting a debt. That's from Abduski v. McCarthy and Hollis LLP as cited in the brief. That was a 2019 Supreme Court case. Um, so that's just recent law. And we know that the, you know, the recent court uh, made that decision. In that case, it reads, even if non-judicial foreclosure were not a direct attempt to collect a debt because it aims to collect on a consumer's obligation by way of enforcing a security interest, it would be an indirect attempt to collect a debt. So when we jump back to the statutes that we're talking about, is it in connection with collection of a debt? These uh, workout uh, discussions, these communications back and forth, the emails uh, in the shadow and immediately in advance of foreclosure. Yes, they're obviously in connection with collection of a debt because they relate directly to the foreclosure. Is it to, to the slightly different standard perhaps of the, a debt collector may not use unfair or unconscionable means to collect or attempt to collect a debt. I still think it falls within that because if you're using an unfair means to foreclose, then that's an unfair means of debt collection. Well, let me ask you about that. So um, Judge Kobus already
1: identified one difference between the statutes. A second difference between the statutes is one the second one 1692f uses only the word mean or uses only the word means i believe whereas the initial one 1692e uses representations or means what are the differences if any between representations and means
0: so i think a representation is something that's overtly being said or at least implied and i think in our case in both in, in all three instances that we're talking about uh, we 're really looking at means we 're looking at unfair means and deceptive means, and the reason I say that is because uh, it, it, it almost seems as though um, even though there are some explicit misrepresentations uh, it, it seems as though when uh, when Carrington is telling the Minnesota Attorney General and ceasing our client on it or sending to our client references that you know we 've done everything we can to assist in the foreclosure process we 've done we 've d- used our best efforts. Okay, when it says we've used our best efforts to um, to solicit the information from the debtor in this workout option, and we see what actually happened, well, how can we objectively say using best efforts is a lie? How can we say that them saying that using their, maybe their best efforts really are terrible? Um, and, and in that sense, maybe it is misrepresentation, but it, it's at least a means that's um, inappropriate or unfortunate or unfair. Um, when they, tell, when they tell my client, for example, uh, you have uh, in the October 20 letter, when, when they say, you have to start the loan modification over again from the beginning, even though we know at that time that he had a complete loan modification submitted, and they tell him, to him, you didn't submit these documents. Now, he knows at that time that he did submit them, obviously, and he's very frustrated by that. But now they're making him start the process all over again. It could be said that that's not a misrepresentation because he knows that they're wrong when they tell him that. But to throw him through these hoops again and gaslight him to to make him think maybe he didn't submit it, um, those are inappropriate, unfair means or a deceptive means. Perhaps not a deceptive misrepresentation. Okay. Does that? that it a- um, On the, um, it jumping back to the uh, Obadzki case, I uh, I I think that rings true for a lot of what we're looking at and what we're trying to figure out. Um, when we look to, if we switch to the uh, exhibits, I mean, I, I think there's a couple key points here that um, that really ring true as you read them. If, if you're able to look switch to uh, the addendum at, at uh, page 36, this is part of a correspondence that was sent to the Minnesota Attorney General's Office in advance of the foreclosure sale. Um, this is about, uh uh to three and a half weeks or so before the foreclosure sale this is the one where we commonly cite um uh, the reference at the bottom of page 36 at that time all the borrower needed to provide was a profit and loss statement for the time period of july 1 2017 through september 6 2017. regrettably since the date of my email i have not i have been advised by our loss mitigation department that the borrower's application remains incomplete and we know that's false because we have the Attorney General's Office fax to them showing the profit and loss statement. We also have his testimony that he provided that information to them. So that, that's objectively false. But then on that page 37, it continues and says, in order to review the borrower's eligibility for mortgage assistance, we need the borrower to provide and then lists a, a full additional set of information that now they want um, because the whole process has to start over again. What's significant there is they're soliciting the financial information of my client. He is a debtor of, their, of theirs. They could at this point decide, we don't want to complete this foreclosure or we want to complete this foreclosure in a different way where we seek a deficiency judgment at this point. Um, and, and so at, you know, at this point, uh, we don't know what they're going to do or how they're going to um, proceed. And at this point, they're just seeking financial information from him um, uh, to make that decision. Um, as, as you continue in that letter, the next page, uh, which is Addendum 38, this comes to the Mini Miranda section. Uh, Mini Miranda is a colloquial term used for this common phrase in debt collection letters. But, I mean, they're literally writing in their letter, this communication is from a debt collector. Okay, so be it. There's no dispute that Carrington was a debt collector. But it says, and it is for the purpose of collecting a debt. For the district court, for the lower district court to say that this letter was not means to collect a debt, but for the letter itself to say it is for the purpose of collecting a debt, I'm not saying that that reference in the letter is necessarily binding, but I'm saying it at least survives summary judgment. When Carrington is telling you the elements that you're trying to show, at least that goes to a jury to determine, all right, was it a letter attempting to collect a debt? Um, unless the court has other questions, I'd reserve the rest of my time for rebuttal.
1: Thank you, thank you for your argument. Uh, Miss Edling, you may proceed.
2: Good morning, Your Honors, may it please the court? You can hear me, right? I'm not, I'm unmuted. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm Emily Edling representing Carrington Mortgage Services. The unusual position taken by the appellant in this matter is that this court should find there were communications in connection with debt collection under the FDCPA, in spite of the fact that there were no statements in any of the communications that demanded payment, contained terms of payment, contained payment deadlines, threatened collection proceedings, or threatened any consequences of non payment. In this case, each and every communication at issue is informational in nature ministerial in nature and occurred either because proceedings were underway to enforce a security interest or occurred because of appellant's request for loss mitigation and follow-up inquiries, and because Carrington had a legal duty to communicate in response. None of the communications seek payment, either directly or indirectly, Um, yet appellant has asked this court in the briefing to find a communication is deemed to be in connection with collection of a debt if it results in making the collection quote more likely unquote so this proposed test is contrary to this court's precedent and it's not supported by the text of the fdcpa the animated purpose test the animating purpose test is the test that's already been adopted by this court it's fully adequate and it's dispositive in this case under the test as explained in McIver, communications and conduct are not considered made in connection with collection of a debt unless the purpose is the communication to is to induce payment by the debtor. Um, you know, the M- McIver court potentially agreed that this could include reporting a disputed debt to a consumer credit agency in that case, but it has to have been done as leverage to collect on the debt. It explicitly rejected the idea that any communication to a credit reporting agency by a creditor could be in connection with collection of a debt under the FDCPA.
1: Council, let me ask you about the October 8th letter. Um, this, is the, or this is the one that uh, concerns me the most. Um, it says that um, the application for mortgage assistance has been canceled because not all the documents have been received. But then two sentences later, in the, in the beginning of the next paragraph, it says, please note that if your loan is delinquent, collection activity may continue, including referral to foreclosure or fo- foreclosure sale unless prohibited by ap- applicable law. So it talks about the loan, it talks about the fact that, they're, that, that uh, your client's collecting, um, and it talks about ref, uh, foreclosure and foreclosure sales. Now, why isn't that enough to, co- to connect it to the debt collection activity?
2: Because the purpose of that letter was still just to provide information. And I think that that language is similar to a mini Miranda. It's explaining what's going on with the status, but nothing in the letter tries to induce payment or or provide the amount that's overdue. It's just purposely informational. This is the status of the loan. This is what's happening. And under the animating purpose test, the court's looking for more. The um, court is looking for a statement that actually would create leverage. Here- Does the
1: animating purpose test, though, require us to ignore the, the plain text of the letter? In other words, are we supposed to get into the, in, into the heads of whoever wrote this letter at the, at the uh, collection agency and try to figure out what their animating purpose is, or do we read the words and try to figure out what the plain words would mean to somebody receiving the letter?
2: I think the court is looking at it from the context of someone receiving the letter, um, the, the debtor that's receiving the letter. But in this situation, we would contend that the, that the purpose of this letter was to provide information. And the bulk but of but here's
1: the problem. If I'm, if I'm the ordinary reasonable person, or I don't even remember exactly how we phrased it, but if I'm the person reading this letter, the, the, the consumer that isn't that sophisticated, I'm thinking to myself, OK, They've just told me I haven't I haven't put all my documents in, but I have, and now they're telling my telling me my loan is delinquent, and I'm possibly going to lose my house if I don't pay it. Um, to me, that sounds like it's it's in connection with, and you know, at least raises a genuine issue of material fact as to um, you know under the under the 1692 uh, e. Why am I wrong about that?
2: Well, I think the problem there is that. You know, it's important to be clear about the status of the loan um, it's it's disputed whether or not this borrower had actually provided all the information you know that's a, an issue of fact that we don 't go into because the court doesn't decide it um, or doesn't decide the case on that basis in this situation but we do discuss in our briefing the fact that you know in fact he hadn't, he hadn't provided a profit and loss statement that was required. Um, But so he's getting this letter back that's explaining the status of his loss mitigation effort. And the letter also, you know, I think reasonably explains that this is the status of your foreclosure and don't believe that the fact that you need to submit further documents means that this foreclosure is is being put off. Um, You can imagine if that language were missing. Oh, I apologize. No, no, go, go right ahead. I thought you were if, finished, so go ahead. If that language were missing, I'm sure we'd be facing a lawsuit under the FDCPA for you know misrepresenting the status of the loan and, and giving this borrower the impression that everything was good and everything had stopped.
1: Well, let me ask you this. So there's two cases. They're both out of circuit. Um, one is Gaburek, which was written by Judge Sykes. It's a Seventh Circuit case. And the other is I think it's Gurdon, which is a Sixth Circuit case written by Judge Keflage. And those right. seem to suggest that when the false statement is linked to foreclosure or other adverse action against the borrower, that that's enough to state a claim. Um, I might be overstating the holding just a tad, um, but what is your reaction to those two cases? I, you know, applying them to the facts of this case.
2: Well, um, the Garden case. On a second. You. The Garden case is one that I was going to talk about anyway in the context of this more likely to result in collection letter. Um, the example that that case gave was um, an example of a non-collection letter that cross-references a collection letter. I think the court is said explicitly in that situation, this is still a collection letter. It's cross-referencing this other, or this, this non-collection letter is cross-referencing the collection letter its purpose is really to collect. Um, and I don't remember the details of the Burritt case right off, but just glancing at it, um, I think in that case the situation was different because. If this is the, sorry, I apologize. I think in that case, there's more details about, about what they can do to avoid collection on a debt. And the court examining the letter found that really its true purpose was to get information or was to give information that would threaten or leverage the borrower and basically scare them into paying the debt whereas in this case you know we've got a situation where in less than a year period it's a 10 month period from Carrington starting servicing the loan to their foreclosure the borrower is basically creating a flurry of contacts by requesting loan multiple loan modification applications and submitting his documents in a piecemeal form that causes the servicer then to need to follow up there's well over 20 contacts that occur between carrington and the borrower during this 10-month period and those contacts are all relating to and many of those contacts are initiated by the borrower himself and they're all relating to just giving him an update of the status of the law and the fdcpa was really intended more to address um, intentional, purposeful efforts that a lender chooses to engage in in order to collect on a debt. The whole purpose stated in the statute is to make sure that we don't have abusive debt collection practices here. You know, these letters were initiated as a result of loan modification applications and follow-up inquiries about the status of those applications. They aren't purposeful directed efforts by the lender to collect on the debt. And therefore, there's no way that these communications can satisfy the animating purpose test, because at a very minimum, that has should actually require intent, right? A lender can't be purposeful unless they have some kind of intent to obtain collection on the debt. Um, Here we have, you know, the district court aptly commented during oral argument that the primary beef in this case is that the appellant contends it gave Carrington information and Carrington says they did not get it. The question is whether Carrington's responses to the borrower during that application process to determine whether it's appropriate to restructure the debt after a number of defaults constitutes a direct or indirect demand to collect the debt. It simply doesn't because under the statute, the explicit purpose is to eliminate abusive debt collection practices. And it's certainly not to cause lenders to want to avoid offering loan modification options. You know, there's a public policy reason why this statute needs to remain focused and tailored to actually uh, Encourage lenders to avoid abusive debt collection practices Speaking of tailored
1: uh, we have that we have the second statute the 1692 F which um, uses um, uh, Use the words unfair or unconscionable and the district court um, said well this seems really unfair And so opposing counsel seizes on that language in the district courts order um, why in your view, why isn't that observation—I won't quite call it a finding—but the observation itself not enough to avoid avoid uh, um, summary judgment here?
2: Right, because the although I would say that 1692 F provides an opportunity for um, a borrower to say that your overall conduct was unfair, everything about the plaintiff's complaint in this case is focused on the misrepresentations. Um, he alleged a little bit of conduct in the complaint, but during the MSJ briefing, it was all about the alleged misrepresentations that came out. That was also brought up in the briefing. So he's basing his conduct argument on the argument that there were misrepresentations. There's a serious question of fact as to that. But really, if if none of those correspondence, none of those letters were intended to collect on the debt, then it doesn't make sense to find that this this was an unfair or unconscionable means to collect on the debt. um, Um, while
0: we're we're on 1692F, um, the following conduct is a violation of this section. And then subsection 6 says, taking or threatening to take any nonjudicial action to affect disposition of property if property is exempt by law. The allegations are here that the... um, the twin tracks of renegotiating the loan and pursuing foreclosure violated Minnesota law. Why doesn't that section apply here?
2: Because that's been abandoned during the briefing on summary judgment. And I think also abandoned on appeal there, there weren't citations to the Minnesota statutes. There was not a discussion or showing there was an allegation in the complaint that there was dual tracking that violated Minnesota law, but state law claims were dropped. And state law was never used as a basis for um, for bringing up an FDCPA claim. In fact, I'm glad your honor mentioned that because I did want to touch on Abdosky. Um, I feel that you know plaintiff is ignoring really the crux of the of Dotski, which explains that you know the FDCPA does not generally apply to the collection of, or to enforcement of a security interest. The Abdosky court said it does apply in one situation, and that is under the situation in 1692 F subsection six. Um, and that's the only situation that it applies. But we've never had a section 1692 subsection, or F subsection six claim. Um, appellant in this case has never said that there was not a right to foreclose Um, which is the subsection A of that section. Um, He's never said that there was no intention to foreclose. Clearly there was an intention. We did foreclose. And clearly there was a right to foreclose. Um, And any, any argument that there wasn't a right was abandoned during the Motion for summary judgment proceedings when they decided not to proceed with their state law claims, and they did not raise any illegality argument as part of their FDCPA claim. Instead, they focused on the communications and whether those communications were misrepresentations. And the counter argument is it really doesn't matter if they're misrepresentations or not because none of them were efforts to collect on a debt. Um, Your Honor, I see that my time is almost up. And unless there are any questions, I'll go ahead and yield the floor.
1: Seeing none, thank you. Uh, Mr. Druis, I think you have a about five minutes for a rebuttal, if I'm remembering correct correctly.
0: Sure. Go ahead, <laughs> uh, I guess the two points that, that uh, I obviously want to take the court's... Uh, issues into consideration. So I'm I'm happy to answer questions, but the two points that I think I'd like to address are references to illegality in the prior pleadings or argument and uh, a discussion then of MacGyver and the narrow or how narrow of a stance there is there. Just on one of the last comments that uh, illegality wasn't brought up in, you know, either in the appellate briefing or the prior briefing, I'd have to go to the prior briefing, but I know that um, at least on page 27 of our brief, um, we say, Uh, The only inference that can be made by Carrington needing to delay not once but twice in responding to the request for rescission of the otherwise illegal foreclosure sale from Hines, formally through the Minnesota Attorney General's office, was to wait Hines out and freeze out his ability to bring a claim directly under Minnesota statutes 582.043. So there, we're citing the dual tracking statute. We are referencing illegality, and I presume that we did that at the district court because, I mean, that, that was a... 582043 is something our firm regularly litigates and regularly talks about, and I would imagine um, that when you look at our briefing, we'll talk about that.
1: On that issue, uh, assuming that it was, was actually briefed, and we'll go back and look at that, um, isn't this something you knew or that the, the, um, that the plaintiff knew um, before the statute of limitations had expired? In other words, these letters all say that we're pursuing foreclosure and we're gonna pursue foreclosure at the same time as a loan modification. And so this was known. And so doesn't that take a little bit of the unfairness
0: or unconscionability out of that um, out of that claim? I, I think when, well, I, uh, I guess two points. One, uh, yeah, he should have brought a lawsuit on time. Uh, the statute of limitations is extremely small. And it's hard to say his limitations are opposed, but uh, you, you basically have to the end of the redemption period. So he has six months to bring that claim, and, and he didn't. And you ask, why didn't he? And his affidavit and the correspondence through the attorney general's office shows that he didn't because he was expecting to have this sort of back and forth um, discussion. Uh, He was expecting rescission um, during that time. So he he failed that. He screwed that up. And so part of the interesting question before the court is, all right, well, even if he doesn't have a claim under that statute, then— does he have a claim under the FTCPA for the unfair behavior? So even if he doesn't bring that lawsuit timely, um, does the federal st- does you know does his inaction on a, a state law claim preclude his ability from bringing an action under the FTCPA um, on uh, on similar grounds? Um, and and I think it doesn't. I think that the FTCPA still allows him um, to pursue a claim under that. On uh, switching gears, short. Sort of to uh, MacGyver and the analysis of MacGyver, um, I, uh, the the court and counsel uh, were pointing out, and it's true that um, in MacGyver, uh, they state the express purposes of the FDCPA, which are one to eliminate abusive debt collection practices, um, but also to ensure that those debt collectors. This is the quote from uh, from MacGyver. To ensure that those debt collectors who refrain from using abusive debt collection practices are not competitively disadvantaged, and and that is also cited to the statute 1692e, 15 U.S.C. 1692e. Um, the toward that purpose, then, uh, you know, do we want Carrington and others like it taking these activities, or do we want them restricted so that um, so that they don't and that the bad actors don't benefit? Um, by succeeding in their misrepresentations. Um, whether it's Carrington or not, there's a question in MacGyver of, all right, after the collection's already happened, do you no longer have the ability to bring an FTCPA claim for misrepresentations after the fact? Uh, the argument that the courts seem to acknowledge below is that there has to be either an explicit or implicit uh, request or demand for payment. Um, and, that's, and when MacGyver says that it's following Gurdon and cites Gurdon, and then you look at those three cases as the court obviously did. Gurdon has a, has a broader standard. Uh, it says that it's either the animating purpose to induce payment um, or that or the activity communication, whatever it may be, that aims to make the ultimate collection attempt more likely to succeed. And, and if, it's a, if it's an activity that creates it more likely to succeed, um, then it has that requisite connection. Um, that's what Gurdon says. MacGyver said it was following Gurdon, Um, We're not saying to disrupt MacGyver. We're saying MacGyver's being too narrowly construed and that this court should clarify that it's actually following Gurdon as it said it was, um, which would include uh, both of those standards. Believe my time's up. Sorry if you had uh, additional questions. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thanks to both counsel for excellent oral arguments. Um, The case is now submitted and an opinion will be issued in due course.